Hello, and welcome back. This week for episode 15, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Cook from The Open University, who is speaking with us about her work and research as a plant ecologist. Julia was an advisor for the recent and successful BBC documentary series, Green Planet, and describes what it was like working on the show. She also explains her core work involving silicon in plants, which until her research was often overlooked, but appears to play a much more significant role than scientists realize. If you like this episode and would like to follow more of Julia's work, please follow the link in the description. And if you'd like to support us, you can make a donation at restoreourplant.org or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Hello, and welcome back to Restore Our Planet podcast with me, your host, Jack Cole. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Cook, who is a plant ecologist from the Open University, who's going to be discussing our work with her uh, this week with a variety of other things. So, Julia, welcome. Thank you. Hi, thank you for coming. And just to kick things off, would you mind by just explaining to us a little bit about what it is you do and why it's important? Uh, thanks. Uh, so I'm a senior lecturer at the Open University. Um, and I guess in my job, I do a mixture of things. So a big part of what we do is teaching. So preparing course material and, and working with students um, to uh, in environmental science and ecology and those sorts of courses. Um, I'm also a researcher, so doing various projects and trying to understand more about how the world around us works, particularly in the plant world. And then uh, I also have the privilege to work on some Open University BBC co-productions um, and, and help facilitate the relationship between um, academics and, and these productions. Um, and also in that role, we uh, offer a range of free learning and I help um, again, facilitate the relationship between academics and the production of these. So um, from day to day, quite a lot of things. <laughs> Fantastic. And tell us a little bit about your journey into your work. Um, I've always been interested in the natural world. I grew up on a farm um, in the middle of nowhere in, in South Australia. And and the, the sort of my parents uh, had bought the farm as a working property uh, but worked um, they weren't farmers so my dad worked in the city and my mum in the local town so they took the livestock off and let most of the property uh, regenerate so lots of the native trees came back and uh, animals people hadn't seen for a long time reappeared over over 25 years so that inspired me to to be interested in in how these interactions between plants and their environment and animals in their environment worked. And so I, I did a biology degree, uh, mainly interested in plants. And then um, for some reason I did an arts degree as well because I was a terrible writer and a terrible speller. So I thought I'll do an arts degree and that will fix that. Um, and interestingly, some of the work I did there uh, really inspired my scientific work and, and took me in the direction of plant silicon. Um, during my PhD, I started teaching and I wasn't expecting to be a teacher, but I really, I really love the teaching aspect. And so, although I thought I was going to be a research scientist, um, I became an academic. Fantastic. And so to be a little bit more specific, what kind of species began returning into your family's plot uh, of farmland? Um, so being in Australia, lots of eucalypts came up, lots of native pines. Um, we saw orchids reappearing, um, carpet snakes, um, goannas appeared. Uh, I think they had a, a huge bird list after the after the twenty five years. Um, I guess the orchids are probably the one that 
people hadn't seen very around very much. I mean, when you're on a sheep farm, things get eaten um, and, and those sort of small plants um, don't really make it through. So sheep and wheat was what was grown in that area predominantly, um, which isn't really compatible with orchids. Right. Am I right in saying there's a link between goannas and iguanas? Hmm. Uh, Is there something in the name or I sort of uh, making that up? I don't perhaps? know. <laughs> All right. I have no idea. <laughs> sorry, sorry for homework for afterwards. Sorry, you yes. popped into my head there. I thought there was like some kind of um, sort of evolutionary link or... Uh, no? I don't know, because I was looking up. There's lots of words for those types of lizards in Australia. There's parenti and monitor and goanna. Right. And they all refer to slightly different species. Iguanas, South American? Sure, yeah. Okay. All right, sorry, just a bit of a stab in the dark there. But, um, it's all right. All right, so you mentioned that you're, you've been working with um, some uh, BBC projects. Would you mind sort of telling us a little bit about your, of course, quite interesting, exciting one, um, um, the Green Planet uh, series? Yes. Uh, so we um, uh, we have the opportunity sometimes to be involved in um, BBC productions in, in our role at the Open University. And um, is it, we're, we're academic consultants to the Open University for the BBC in these programs. Um, and I was absolutely thrilled when Green Planet um, was first announced and came across my desk um, because I love the private life of plants, which was about 25 years ago now. Um, and so, so in this role, we, we really try and um, help realise the, the producer's vision for the series, really. So these, the ones that come across my desk, obviously, are, are science related. And, um, and so the, the program's commissioned at this point and, and, and people have an idea of what it will look like. But we try to help um, uh, think what, what new science discoveries, what new stories might align with what they're thinking about um, I think sometimes what can be helpful are things that having taught in that field, teachers aren't able to find footage of or um, things like that. So that things that have never been filmed before, but we know they happen, that kind of thing, we can, we can try and highlight um, that they would be very, very welcome. Um, and then we review different parts of uh, different, uh, the footage in, in different sort of stages. And there's a bit of fact checking, um, because in, in the process of uh, describing things for, for the audience that the program is aimed at, um, little bits sometimes can get left out or there's, there's, we, we can try and help find better ways to explain things. Um, but of course, the BBC are already very good at what they do. Um, so our role is to, to enrich um, as much as we can. Um, but it's well, wonderful to see how television's made. Fantastic. Were there any sort of little facts that really surprised you or anything that stood out from, um, from what they were exploring or some of the little stories there? Um, yeah, there were, there were some sort of familiar friends in there, things that I, um, I was really pleased to see uh, be presented to such a big audience on, on primetime television, like the, the, the Marimo algal balls that live in freshwater lakes and... Um, and the Rafflesia, you know, this giant flower, the biggest flower in the world that's completely parasitic. Mm -hmm. um, I think some of the surprising things were um, stories that uh, sort of challenge what we normally think about. So I think here in the UK, we think about mistletoes as being something that you see in winter up in the tree when all the other leaves have fallen off, you see a big mistletoe. 
um, and we, we think about it at Christmas, um, but in the green planet, they feature a mistletoe that lives inside a cactus. Um, and for most of the year, it's, it's sort of hidden inside this cactus and all of a sudden these, these flowers burst out. And it, I think things like that really change people's perception of, of what a mistletoe is. Um, and I like those sorts of stories. One that really blew my mind was that Israeli uh, maze, that when it goes to seed, that it basically has a function where it's essentially walking. Uh, um, yes. And so it basically essentially finds a little crack. Um, that absolutely blew my mind, especially when you see that sort of sped up. Mm. Um, over time, you're literally watching a little little seed walking along uh, dry, uh, dry earth, really fantastic. You mentioned there the, um, sorry, I forget the, the name, but it was the, the, the biggest flower in the world. The Rafflesia. Um, the Rafflesia, that's the one. Is that the one that basically smells like uh, like decay and rot? And mm. tell me a bit about how that, uh, that flower works. Um, I've never seen one. I'd love to see one and I, I, I don't study them, but um, they're, they're such a, an extraordinary example of, of plant life. So they, um, they're a hollow parasite, which means they have no chlorophyll. They don't um, make any of their own food with photosynthesis at all. They spend most of their life inside a vine except when they're ready to flower and they produce these huge flowers that are a meter across and um, they're pollinated by flies that are attracted to carrion or, or dead um, dead animals so they look like meat and they smell appalling um, but but yes to to be very unplant like and make the biggest flower in the world is um, is unbelievable Absolutely. Okay, so tell us a little bit about some of your favourite uh, discoveries that have happened over perhaps the past decade or, or recent years. Um, I, I guess there's those that are related to my own research and research interests, and then there's others that um, I, I don't work on at all, but I think are amazing. I think um, one big area is looking at seagrasses. Um, so these are, these are true plants so lots of seaweeds and things are not uh, are not necessarily plants they're sort of um, somewhat related perhaps but quite distant but sea grasses are a true plants that have flowers and seeds and and roots and um, and I think we're learning enormous amounts about those in the last um, couple of decades and some of my favorite things that I've learned um, are that they're pollinated by animals just in the same way that that land plants are pollinated. So while lots of the flowers um, release their pollen, they're just carried through the water um, to, to land on other flowers and pollinate them. There's also tiny crustaceans that move between the flowers and oh. move the pollen around, just like just like a bee does on land. And um, and this is this was sort of shown experimentally just sort of five or six years ago. And similarly, there's large animals that graze these areas, and we saw that. Um, in the green planet. So things like dugongs and turtles um, graze these areas, but they also eat the, eat the fruit and the seeds and, and they swim away. And then when they deposit their feces, they spread the seed just like a, um, just like a, you know, an antelope or an elephant um, uh, spread seed. So we see, uh, we call them seagrass meadows and we see lots of the same processes underwater that we see wow. in terrestrial ecosystems. I just think that's mad. Yeah. <laughs> it's difficult to imagine sort of pollen sort of functioning the same way uh, in water because you would imagine it just sort of get washed away or it just somehow dis disintegrate or uh, fascinating. Mm. Um, and I think um, lots of water plants or plants that grow either un underwater or partly in water um, don't even try and spread pollen that way. They stick their flowers above the water 
and use lots of the, mm. the kind of terrestrial insects. Dragonflies, to... or yeah, right. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, whereas um, seagrass is still all of this completely underwater. Amazing. Mm. Brilliant, brilliant. And is that sort of things that you've been studying personally, or is that just generally what's been interesting over? Um, yeah, years? I think just generally what's been interesting um, to me. Uh, I think seagrasses are gaining interest because uh, of the amount of carbon that's stored in the ecosystems that that these area that form. So there used to be a lot more seagrass meadows than there are now. They're being damaged by fishing and water and sort mm. of nutrient runoff and all sorts of things, but we're realising that the soil underneath these seagrass meadows can accumulate massive amounts of carbon, which is really what we need at the moment is to be storing and locking away carbon to to reduce the, the levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. So right. seagrasses are gaining interest for that, but in at the same time, we're learning a lot about their ecology. And... Um, Yes, I don't study it. I think I'd like to. Hopefully there's lots of silicon in seagrasses and I'll, I'll get Fantastic. to it. All right. And what are you studying at the moment? What are you researching? Um, so I have a couple of projects looking at uh, silicon. Uh, so that's my main research interest. Um, and at the beginning, you asked me uh, how I got here and I was talking about doing an arts degree. Yeah. And um, so I have a, a degree in uh, archaeology and paleontology that I don't really use. Um, no. But one of the uh, things I learnt was about phytoliths. So when uh, mo all plants have some silicon in them and those that silicon can be deposited as little tiny uh, uh, silica bodies or plant stones, which is what phytoliths mean. And, and they can have all sorts of functions in a plant. And then when that plant dies, the organic bit sort of decomposes like our compost just sort of decomposes. But those tiny little silica bodies or plant stones can hang around in the soil and we can use those to recreate past environments. So for the, the kind of paleontology and archaeology component, I was learning about these phytoliths. And then I went looking in the science and the plant literature to see what people knew about plant silicon. And that was very, very little. Um, and so I thought, oh, well, it must be doing something if plants are, are, are sort of laying down so much of it. Um, and that, that sparked my, um, my PhD research. Um, and at the moment, um, one of the things I'm looking at is trying to understand um, or get closer towards the costs of using silicon for plants. So we're learning um, that all plants have silicon. They do all sorts of things with it, and it can really help manage a whole range of stresses but the question is why don't all plants have loads of silicon if it's so great there must be a cost right and so one of the ways plants take up silicon is through their roots it's just dissolved in the soil solution they take it up through the roots um, and they can deposit it in their leaves in around the little pores that um open and close stomata? Stomata? Yeah, stomata? Stomata. Is, yeah, it, exactly. so is it if i remember correctly one is when it's open and the other is when it's closed is that right the whole I is stoma or sorry go no on. i think it's single singular and plural okay um, oh okay so it's right. one stoma and multiple stomata or maybe the other way around okay <laughs> um <laughs> Um, so it can close silicon can deposit there and close the stomata um and and reduce the transpiration so we're, we're sort of doing some research to understand what those feedback loops might be and whether whether sort of using silicon could be its own worst enemy a little bit 
Um, oh, it's fascinating. Hmm. As, 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 sorry, so it serves as a function to give it sort of strength and sort of shape, something like that? Uh, yes, uh, possibly. Uh, so definitely in some plants. So I don't know if you know horse tails they're, um, or mare's tails. They're... Um, some people call them dinosaur plants because they're, right. there's uh, pictures of these plants or fossils rather than pictures of these plants from around dinosaur times and the Carboniferous and things as well. Um, and, and they have loads of silicon. So they're about 10% of their, their dry weight is silicon. It's just massive amounts. And people used to use it as sandpaper because it's got so much grit right. in it. And they, they're very much use it as a structural component but it it functions um some grasses uh use it as a herbivore defense so um uh it can it can wear down mouth parts um it can mean when animals are chewing the grass they can't crush the cells very well because mm. of all these little silica bodies and so they can't get so much nitrogen so they go and eat something else instead of these high silicon things i think i've also heard you say before that silicon is responsible for uh like 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 paper cuts. I mean, obviously not paper, mm. but sort of leaf cuts, if we can call it that. Is that is that accurate? Yes, I like that leaf cut. Yeah, um, yeah. That's I think that's where most people encounter um, silicon. So if you sometimes run your finger up a grass blade, mm. and it will give you a little a little cut, and that's because the edge has has silicon. I I don't think the plants are trying to hurt your hands. I think they're trying to hurt the the kind of the mouth parts of you know a cow or a horse or or something like that. Um, and um, yes, the other place people see silicon is um, in stinging nettles. So when when you get stung, that that little sting that goes into you is made of Oh, really? Because it, it's see-through, isn't it? More, yes. more or less see-through. Yeah. Right. Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. That's really interesting. Okay. It ends up everywhere. Yeah, yeah absolutely. My um, soup as well. As far as what, well, as I've heard back in the sort of, you know, medieval period, it was quite a common uh, sort of delicacy is the right word, but, you know, just yeah. what people generally ate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. All right. So mentioned a few things there. So what else, um, what other sort of quite exciting things are going on in your field at the moment? Um, we're looking at uh, mimicry in, in plants. So I think a lot more is known about mimicry in the animal world and understanding how how some animals mimic other animals or they might mimic their behavior um and we see lots of examples of mimicry in the plant world um but to to study them and demonstrate mimicry uh is is quite difficult and we're learning how to do that better in the plant world using examples um from from animal studies so in green planet we saw this fantastic example of a um what sort of plant was it it was some sort of sedge i think and its seeds um at the same shape and sort of texture as antelope dung and so the dung beetles come along and and roll the roll these seeds away and, and conveniently bury them, um, in mistaking them for for animal dung. And so the fact that a plant has evolved to to manipulate the the visual and you know the the mm. eyes and the ears of these um, these dung beetles is is just extraordinary to have this kind of confused conversation uh, across these two species it's amazing and does that generally just come about as a process of evolution or is that yes I, it does i mean it, i think when you see the you know 
extreme examples of mimicry today, it's really hard to imagine how they might have evolved mm. um, because it's such a such a tight sort of relationship now. But I think probably, you know, there may have been seeds that looked a little bit like these dung and occasionally got rolled away and the ones that got rolled away obviously grew better. And so, you know, this, this relationship um, was strengthened and strengthened and strengthened in terms of how strong the mimicry was. Um, and there's, there's lots of examples of, of mimicry where flowers might, um, of where we, another example that was in Green Planet was um, where orchids mimic a female insect and the male insect tries, tries, essentially tries to mate with the flower, but instead pollinates it. Um, and then uh, in my own work, so we're looking at some of these orchid species and, and how, how they mimic um, insects, because some mimic one insect, which you can see how that might sort of happen, but some attract multiple insects. And how do you mimic multiple insects at the same time? I don't have right. an answer yet, yeah. but I'm, <laughs> I'm asking you some questions. Right, no, fantastic. Well, I suppose another example of mimicry would be, like another way to go, the name, the, the plant that mimics a dead a dead animal, the... Oh, the Rafflesia. Yeah, there yes. we go. Right, right. Okay. Yes. Rafflesia. I won't forget it again. Rafflesia. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was named after Raffles, who was an explorer. Oh, right. Of course. Oh, brilliant. That helps. Okay. <laughs> so there we go. Um... Okay, so what changes uh, would you like to see in your field over the coming, you know, over the coming years? Or is there anything you wish there was more emphasis on supporting that would potentially, you know, um, assist our wider society in, in some way or other? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I guess one of the big, well, I don't know if it's, if it's sort of an internal problem or, or an external problem um, is when, so when we when we do science it's it's nice to discover things and find things but then a really important part is communicating them to other people whether that's the science community or 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 further afield and and a lot of that work uh occurs through journals so we publish our work in peer-reviewed journals so you submit you write up your report and you submit it and then it goes out for review and then the journal accepts it and um and or, or not accept it and it's uh, hopefully it's eventually published um and that that process is is part of the kind of the sort of maintaining scientific rigor uh but the the kind of publication model uh, is a bit sort of broken so um the all the peer reviewing is done by peers but you you essentially do that work for free um, so you can sort of do it as part of your job, but often there's not time. So it's a lot of work that we do often out of hours. Um, and then there's also often big fees involved in publishing your work and where it can be published. And then to access, um, if you're not part of an institution to access that work, you often have to pay to read those articles. So I think there's sort of these bottlenecks and problems um, associated Stuffy. with... Yes, yes, it's sort of people, uh, there are barriers to publication because it's those who can afford to publish in certain places um, that, uh, that, that makes it unfair. And then having, having done that work, uh, make, it's, but it's not available to everybody and it's the people that can pay that can yeah. have access. Is I was about to say it really sort of disincentivizes outsiders or sort of, you know, genius eccentrics who make have come from like a, you know, a different sort of marginalized background or something like that there's a lot of uh, 
lot of barriers, I imagine. Mm. Yeah. And I think people who, um, you know, different universities can afford different access to, to journals for their students and things like that. So there's the, that system to me is, um, is not fair. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of journals. There's journals where you pay to publish, but then they're free to read. There's journals where it's free to publish, but you pay to read. Mm. There's journals where these things are highly subsidised. Um, there's sort of a full spectrum of, of journals from, from very good to really bad. Um, but these, the, the whole system, I think, um, is, is problematic because we need it to be um, more accessible um, both for publication and reading rather than less. So if I could change one thing <laughs> about, about um, being part of science, it would be that. And how do you think that would come about? Would it be just um, a complete overhaul of the sort of the culture of, of, of publishing research or? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't have a good solution really, because obviously to, it, it needs to be funded somehow because these are organizations that have, um, editors and platforms for organizing the peer review process and typesetters and sometimes physical publications or electronic publications and, and storage of all of those sorts of things. So it's, it, it's not something that can be free and just and happen. Sure. Um, but whether they, whether they sort of need to be nonprofit organizations that are running them, um, whether, um, once it's published, putting other versions in other places is should be more acceptable and legalised. I don't know. There's lots of different models flying around at the moment that people are trying, um, and hopefully uh, become more equal. And I, I think too, it's it's those in in sort of powerful powerful positions who start boycotting some journals and making some of those changes. And it's the people who with less power who can't um, who don't really have a choice. So um, I think. Yeah, I think we can all make a contribution by deciding where we publish and where we review. Right, and who people choose to read and sort of mm -hmm. respect generally, I suppose. Yeah. Indeed. Okay. Well, well, right. How about um, what excites you about the coming years and uh, plant ecology? Um, uh, oh, a lot. <laughs> yeah, please elaborate. Um, I I think in in my own field in in plant silicon research uh, it's been magic to watch a community grow so when I first when I was first a PhD student and I went to a conference I said I work on plant silicon people said plant what there's plants have silicon in them and and now when I go to a conference sometimes there's a session on plant silicon and there's a lot of people working in this area now it's still quite small but I think um, it's it's really interesting and and growing and it's great to see um, new PhD students coming through and, and all of the wonderful things that they're doing and, and helping, helping them and pay it forward in the way of people have supported me. Um, so there's lots of interesting ways to study plant silicon. One of the, one of the nice things that has come up recently is, uh, somebody studying a chronos sequence. So it's an area where, uh, you get a, a range of different soil ages. So these are really new soils. Um, that are, have, have recently weathered from, from rocks and things, and then slightly older and slightly older and slightly older and slightly older, well, slightly being millions of years older, I suppose. 
and then you can you can this area might experience similar climate um, so you can rule out climate as what's it, there's, there's no climate variation across the site so it must be the soil mm, and right. and these soils have different amounts of silicon and then you can study the vegetation and see how that changes over time so rather than because we haven't got a time machine and we can't go back in time we can sort of look at this chrono sequence which i think is just such an elegant approach um, to doing studies um, there's also uh, students looking at um, silicon in different groups of plants so a lot of the focus has been on grass because they have quite a bit of silicon in them and um, rice and sugarcane and wheat and barley and things are really important crops and also contain a lot of silicon so those grasses have had a lot of the attention and um, there's students coming up that are that are arguing that other other plant groups need our attention and there's um, for example looking at legumes and all the beans and peas and and that family and they're, they're really important crops as well but they're also interesting because they have a relationship with bacteria and so these bacteria are housed in their roots in these nodules and they can fix nitrogen so they can take nitrogen from the air and fix that into from a gas to a to various compounds and and help fertilize the soil so people advocating to for more studies um, to look at silicon and how how that might have a role in in legumes or the bees the beans and pea family all right, fantastic, exciting. Mm. Okay, Julia. Well, thank you for the wonderful um, conversation so far. Um, just to end things, where can people find your work and, uh, and follow you in general? Uh, well, if you Google Julia Cook and the Open University, um, <laughs> I'll turn up somewhere. Um, and I'm on Twitter um, at Cook Julia, uh, and that's Cook with an E. Fantastic. Julia, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome.